Good morning, everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of the Localization Fireside Chat and YouTube channel. My name is Robin Ayub. I'm your host and founder of this platform. And for those who aren't familiar with me, it's a pleasure to meet you. And for if you'd like to get to know me a little bit better, you can get on LinkedIn and try to find me, and I'd love to connect and communicate with you. And also today, we have an exciting discussion for you, and I'm honored to be joined by Peter Reynolds. Peter is the co-CEO of MemoQ. And Peter, as we say on this channel, everybody's got a little story about how they got into the localization industry and your bio speaks for itself. Uh, you're a household name when it comes to the legacy that you're built. you've built over the years in the industry and you're a veteran of the industry. If you don't mind, the mic is yours. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about MemoQ. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. I'll start by telling you how I got into this industry. My original job was in social work, and I was working in a social housing project in Bradford, in England, in the 1990s, and I wanted to get uh, to move back to Dublin, where I was from. I started looking for jobs there in a very primitive way and compared to how you would do it this way that I had a, a newspaper posted to me once a week. I would scour through that. I found a job for a company called Softrans. I applied for it and I ended up working for Softrans in their office in Dunleary in, in south of Dublin. The Softrans is a really interesting company because it was the first company that said that it was selling something called localization. And this was all it did. It, it didn't do translation or whatever. It just was geared up towards selling a service that they called localization to technology companies. And at the time, there were some other people that did similar stuff, but they were the first one that this was exclusively what they did. And they built up quite a sizable company and eventually sold it to Berlitz. Then Berlitz sold it to Bound. And then Bound sold it to Linebridge. And all the same, during all that, as the name on the door changed outside the office, I was sitting in the same desk working for different companies. And I started off by doing localization testing and localization engineering. And then I moved into development work. And I was very lucky with that because we had some, we were able to work with partners like Sistran to come up with innovative ideas. At the time, Sistran had a technology that they called Babelfish, which was the main machine translation service available on a web search platform called Vista. And they were getting something like 2 million jobs per day during this platform. Everybody at the time thought that was phenomenal. Obviously, now it's probably 2 million jobs per second that go through Google, but you know, who knows? What we thought is that if 1% of these jobs could, would need a human translation, we would have a money-making venture. And we created something we called Berlitzer and then waited and waited and waited and waited for job. And we found that nothing happened, that it wasn't to one of the salespeople got in their car, went down to Microsoft and said, look, we've got a faster, easier way of you doing your work where you just put this into a web platform and get it translated by us. Then we had a business. And by the time uh, I think Bound was bought by Linebridge, this was a business worth something like $23 million per year and had 60% revenues. And it's still going. With Linebridge have changed the name. They've improved the technology. They've optimized it. But essentially, the service has been going since uh, before the end of the last uh, last millennium <laughs> until now. Af after I, I left Berlin, Linebridge is based in a small town in Boston, in Massachusetts called Waltham. And while I was living in Dublin, I left a company which was headquartered in Waltham, Massachusetts, for another company that was headquartered in Waltham, Massachusetts called Idiom. And I worked for them for about three years, which is quite an exciting time. Idiom had sort of hit a ceiling in terms of how they were selling their service because it was really focused on the enterprise sale. 
And in order to get do really well within technology in the translation sector, you have to think about translation companies and you have to think about translators. And they started off by thinking of the enterprise and thinking of the enterprise would be the only way to do it. But when they realized that you needed translator, translation companies involved, we started expanding quite rapidly. And, and many of these translation companies became really great partners to the company, brought in an awful lot of really useful insight and, and place to work for, for a couple of years. I, I left them when they got acquired by, by SDL. The the technology is still being offered by SDL at the moment. And after I left them, three Hungarian language technology gigs approached me. And they approached me with about the worst offer I could possibly have got. The idea was that I could work for with them for a whole year and they would pay me my expenses, but wouldn't actually pay me anything. Maybe at the end of the year, if we still had a company, you could have a share in it. And I, for some foolish reason, I said yes. And I found that my first job at the time, this was Mama Q, and at the time, they were all working part-time in the company, doing other things. And the first thing I had to do was to persuade them that they had something really good, which they had. They had been... They had the feeling that because they were a tiny Hungarian company, nobody was really interested in. I turned that on its head, you know, by like in Hungary, for example, they had a lot of access to very well-educated workforce. At the time, and still to this day, we've got a connection with the with the people that came from the Technical University of, of Budapest. So you had people that were lecturing in software development in the morning and in the afternoon were working on MemoQ. One of them was even writing books with people at Microsoft and whatever on new platforms such as the .NET framework at the time and whatever. Anyway, we quickly looked at... Uh, we analyzed the sector. We saw that all our competitors, and they weren't really competitors at the time because none of them knew we existed, really. But they were all aiming for either enterprises or for translators. And the translation companies were being left alone. It was being expected that they would buy the same tool as their the enterprises they were offering their services to, or that their translators would persuade them. So we set out to target this group and we found, you know, the, one of the problems with the enterprises or with the translation companies is they really know what they're doing. There will be somebody in any translation company, no matter how small, who is a language technology expert and will know before you walk in the door all the things that are wrong with your software. So it's a hard sell, but it was you know something that made us a much stronger company. We set out to sell to translation companies. We also set out to sell in Germany in particular. And the reason for that was something similar. Big translation technology companies like Trados, Across, Ontram, and whatever, were all from Germany. And if we could sell in their backyard... We could make you know we could sell anywhere. Well, when we found we put ourselves the highest fence to climb, when we found we could climb that, we were in very good shape to grow later on. And we've continued to do this. We're a bootstrap company. We've been growing for you know nineteen years. Last year we grew by twenty two percent. We're one of the largest players within the sector. We've got about 160 people working directly for us, and we still have partners such as uh, the people that I met that originally started in the University of Budapest. So we're in very good shape. And what we do is sell translation technology, and it's a translation management system where which you use, which project manager would use to manage your translation, but also a cat tool which translator would use to do the translation. And our approach is to offer the best quality we can in that field.
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, thanks for that brief. I really appreciate it. Walk, you walking us down the, the, from the beginning till now, and you, and you really summed it up very nicely, like how you started, where you are, and the various transitions that you've been through, and then the various steps that you had to go through. Just for our audience, you know, when you took on a job, as you mentioned earlier, with, you know, hardly any salary, and they asked you to do, you know, this job. So, if somebody, you know, it, it takes a quite a, it takes a quite the guts to do that. It takes a quite the courage to do that for you know for people who are looking to move from point point A to point B. You must have seen an opportunity, and you said, you know what, there's an opportunity here. I'm willing to take the risk. Yeah. What is the advice that you would give the audience who are faced in a similar or typical challenge such as what you've just described? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be advising people to to jump for that. I I think in retrospect, there are probably better ways of of doing it. Most business, you know, most companies that are saying new to to the sector don't go down the funding route that we had. Have been entirely bootstrapped. We we made our money from selling to customers and use that to grow the business. Most companies go down some sort of funding by VCs and whatever, and there's disadvantages to that. Like if you sell mm-hmm. your part of your company to somebody at the earliest stages, they'll want an awful lot of the company for very little. So you need to get, you need to have something where, you know, your family or your friends or somebody can help you to get to the first six months, one year, so that you've got a product and you've got a product that you can show to people. But the the secret in all this is to believe in what you're doing. Like if you have a good idea and you know you know what you're doing and you're certain it's going to be that it's going to be a success, it's much more you're much more likely to be successful with it. The the other thing to, to take into account and all this is a good idea is not enough. The, the idea, the technology, whatever, not the important thing. The important thing is the customer. If you've got a good idea that needs a customer and you've persuaded actual people to, uh, you know, to, to buy this, That's or right. you've, you know, you've given them, the, they've told you that you produce that and I will buy it. That's the important thing. The, the customers where it starts, not the technology. Yeah, There's too many businesses. Too many businesses. It's very true. You know, what problem are we trying to solve and how much is the customer willing to pay for it? Yeah, exactly. Hey, also, you know, since we are on the topic and we jump right di- directly into the MemoQ current status discussion. And so what sets you apart? What sets MemoQ apart, in your opinion, from the other vendors in the same space? And you mentioned earlier, you're, you know, Germany is a, a market where you're excelling against SDL as a competitor. Why do you think that is? What's the difference? Well, we, the reference to Germany was, you know, where we essentially learned to, to sell. And our reason for going for there was because they were at the time the most sophisticated market for what we had. And we would learn most by targeting that market. We we target mark every market now. What sets us apart? It, MamaQ is very much aiming for the premium translation market. We aim for the market where you need to have a quality translation product, and you need to have a professional dealing with the translation and professional dealing with the project management. We don't particularly target where the workflow would be almost completely automated. In our target market, there always has to be a person in control. And one of the interesting things that we're seeing now with the advent of ChatGBT and whatever is people are learning the importance of that, the, you know, the importance of having a person in control. I think... Prior to the ChatGPT interface being released, people had this vision that translation could be written almost completely automatically and it doesn't need to be checked and whatever. And also content would be written completely automatically and doesn't need to be checked. And, you know, if you've heard the story about the lawyer in New York who 
had six cases, all of which were untrue, presented to a court in, in a case he was doing. You see the problems of not having a competent person in control. And the case for having you know competent translators being in control is very much made for that. What we've been we've been calling that augmented translation for some time. This is a phrase, I think the common sense advisory people were the first ones to use that. They've we've been using that phrase for the last four or five years. But again, with the advent of ChatGPT, suddenly everybody is talking about that or hybrid hybrid working where part of it, the content is generated in our case by machines that do neural machine translation in other cases by artificial intelligence, by large language models. But you do need a competent professional. The better content you get out there will because you have a competent professional either translating or in the case of large language models dealing with the content that comes from that. Now, on the, you know, on the cat tool, I guess cat tools have their evolution and they've been seeing a lot of evolution recently, especially as you mentioned earlier and the mm. hybrid model that we always kind of be existing in that technology and human kind of have to coexist for a long time. Obviously, technology will continue advancing and evolving and we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Um, you know, not much talk has been given and I'd love to ask you this question on the project management side. The, the modules that you guys from MOQ provide to the industry on the project management side, mm. has there been, in your opinion, advancement? What's the status, I guess, on that one? Have we done everything we could do as an industry to advance that project management layer, if you will? I, I don't think so. I, I, there's an awful lot to be done. There's, in in MemoQ, for example, you can have a completely automated workflow. The way we try to have it is that the project manager gets involved when there's something which would benefit them, mm. or would benefit by them bringing their expertise. But we have, we call them project templates in MamaQ, but essentially it's an automated workflow. And you many of the things that people did in the past that were quite complicated, like... For example, if you have a new document going through MemoQ that the project manager is dealing with, it usually automatically it takes the best you know, 90, 95% matches from a TM. And if it hasn't got any matches for a particular segment, it will go to their favorite machine translation and get a segment from that. And that's all automatic and that's all out of the box. And it's almost old hat at this stage because we've been doing that sort of thing for quite some time now but the way it is now is that all those various parts that we've been doing for some time are all added together and that the project manager sees everything and can mm -hmm. control it you know they can automatically they can write rules to automatically assign translators mm -hmm. if you know if you're a translation company and you've signed, you can say you get work for L'Oreal or something, and you sign it to a particular translator. If the customer is happy with that, has been very happy with that, it makes sense to sign it to them again. And that will automatically happen. You know, you, you can organize that to, to happen within, within MemoQ. Uh, there's other areas where we're improving MemoQ is uh, probably a language-orientated uh, TMS mm. in that many of the tools that we have for project managers also relate to the language thing. We've been improving how how we deal with translation memories. And I think we're the only company that is, is working on that. Many people have accepted the translation memories have gone as far as they, they can. And we didn't. And we end, we've now released a new translation memory, it's going to be a slow release because it's a major technology change. And we are cautious about, about that sort of change. We don't want people to end up with problems. But mm -hmm. we've just released uh, TM+. Plus. What that is, is a much more scalable uh, TM. For example, if the project manager or the company they're working with wants to use their TMs 
in a say with an NNT a neural machine translation engine that they're working with, the TM plus engine will make that much easier because it's a much more scalable, much faster TM engine than than we previously had or, or our competitors have previously had. And you know, it's an example where fixing problems, one thing in the areas of you know TMs improving how how they they work can end up with benefits in another area, such as how how TMs could be reused in other settings, such as with neural machine translation or, or with other sort of you know like large language models, whatever mm-hmm. you, you might use them for. The, which leads me to, you know, just to take that step further, I guess, on the TMS side, everybody I talk to, I mean, you know, our industry is based on customers. We're a service industry, right? So, yeah. and customer, that customer interface, that relationship with the customer is very, very important. And it mm-hmm. seems to be, to a large extent, to me at least, still relies on Outlook communication, you know, emails, sending emails to the customer, exchanging messages with customers. <laughs> Yeah. And I remember like my background, I'm not sure if you knew that, but my background is software, right? So I'm a technologist by yeah. background. And back in the late 90s, excuse me, you know, I was working for a company called Genesis, still around. They got bought by Avaya, et cetera, later. But, and we wrote back in the late 90s, and that's, we used to develop systems for call centers. We wrote logics and, and programs to allow us to read an incoming email, and that's at the beginning of email at the top. It read an incoming email, decipher what's inside of that email, go to the database. If somebody has say, example, I'm checking on my order. We take the order number, we go to the database, we look at the database, see what's the status of that order, come back, formulate an email, and send it back to the customer. And it would look to that customer that they got the information they need immediately. They didn't have to wait for it you know, a week for somebody or two days for somebody to respond to them. I don't know what the wait time is nowadays for somebody to respond to a customer. But I find that ability today with AI and and the, and the information that we've got and the database structures that we currently have, it's much easier to do these things versus, mm-hmm. you know, back in the, back 20 years ago. What's your, what's your thoughts on the customer facing side of things? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a whole, you know, a, a whole other uh, program for you. I, I think you're right. The only thing I would suggest is that you were probably less likely to get, to make mistakes using the technology of 20 years ago and what you were describing. You probably just wouldn't get things wrong while, uh, you know, with LLMs and whatever being, you know, artificial intelligence being used by that, there's a good chance that you make mistakes. Sure. I I think that the interaction that you know the real people that are using our software, and it's good to, to actually work with them. One of the things that we do is we've got a support team that's uh, staffed by actual people. You know, you don't you get do get an automated response instantly, but within about thirty minutes, you probably have a real person checking something on this. And our thinking, and this has been the thinking with Mama Q since the beginning, was that if things that could cause people to, you know, if a translator is working, say, in the middle of the night or in a different time zone, and they stop working for an hour, that could be, you know, the loss of them, the companies they're working with, a whole range of people. And it it may not have any reason for it other than the fact that nobody saw that you know nobody saw what was wrong and sent them a quick email that tells them what the fi- what the fix was and we've always had this approach to try and get a real person onto it immediately. I get what you're saying. We do use uh, technologies to uh, we use a technology called telemetry to try to find out what people are doing with the software to try to improve on how, how they're using it. You know, if, for example, if we find that people are doing strange things with the software, it takes some 10 minutes to do it while there's a, a two-minute way of doing it, we'll make sure they know about it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we collect information on that, and that is quite easy now because uh, the companies that create the so- the tools to write the software, like Microsoft, provide kits to to do this. And you know that's what we're doing. We're, we're f- using uh, software to find out what people are doing with their consent. The consent issue is hugely important, and and rightly so. But we've got people's consent for getting some information back. And with that, we can optimize their performance. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that answer. I really appreciate it, Peter. Just switching gear on you a little bit, if you don't mind. I noticed that you have a lot of involvement with the ISO standards. You you took part of the establishment of the XLIF, et cetera. Has, you know, A, if you don't mind, explain to the audience what was your role and, you know, how did that impact you and the learning that you've, t- you've taken from this yeah. and you've applied it in your, in your, in your, in the various steps of your career. Yeah. I became involved next Cliff, at the beginning of the project, which was, it, this was a project that happened in Dublin. Our bosses wanted to play golf with each other and they had to have a reason to play golf with each other. So, they got a group of clever people together, put them in a room and said, come up with something clever. And because they you know, decided that, they could then play golf with, without a guilty conscience. So anyway, in this room, there was people from, I was from Berlitz, there was somebody from Moravia, and mainly big software companies like IBM, Novell, Sun Microsystems, uh, Oracle, Microsoft. And when they look, well, when we looked at all the problems we had, we decided the biggest problem was file interchange. So each of these localization publishers had hundreds, in some cases, thousands of, of file formats that had to be localized. And what we were hoping is that instead of having those hundreds and thousands of different file formats, we'd have one. And what we discovered very quickly is there was somebody, a man called Yves Sabaral, whom used to work, he worked for Lasso and various other companies. And I think Lasso is now part of Argus Translation, where he, he's now working. But Yves Sabaral has been involved in pretty much every technology standard that localization industries come up with. And he had developed an XML vocabulary called OpenTime. So okay. what XLIF was, was OpenTag version 2.0, and we quickly developed it. We got some success about this. In the pre-localization world days, Ulrich Hennes had a, a conference called the Localization Institute Conference, and we announced it there. And then we decided that we needed somewhere to live. And we went to Oasis and found this quite remarkable because um, until this point, we'd always been complaining that the localization part was the the poor relation in in terms of, you know, say software or whatever. It was always being ignored. And what we found within Oasis was that the CEO of Oasis would be coming to our committee and saying, look, we've got these other people here that deal with this content format called DITA, and we think they need to talk to you. You know, we think localization is really important to that. And I, I think we all benefited from this conversation. I think they developed this in a very nice way that takes into account localization. And some of our colleagues in that committee got very in, involved with that. But there was also the advantage that because Oasis was publishing it, everybody treated it very seriously. And at one stage, XLIF was being used as a format outside of localization for the early versions of Android were using it to help them with some of the use, user interface for, for, the, for their applications which was quite strange, but it showed the power of having a, a big uh, standards organization totally backing us. And, you know, we've seen almost every company come up with their own XLIF standard. Anybody who's doing any sort of, if you're doing some translation from Adobe or from Oracle or from whatever, they will send it in XLIF. All of 
the companies that provide technology for the translation industry use Xlip as an interchange format. And the whole thing's been incredibly successful and still going quite strong. And I'm, I'm not involved with it at the moment. The only thing I do for the XLIF committee is that XLIF is now an ISO standard, and I guide it through there. What I did in ISO, I was the project editor for a project called ISO 17100, which was interesting, a very interesting translation standard because it specified a translation product where you had to have the translation done by a professional translator and then revised by somebody with the same experience. And this was a very strong product that many of the companies within our industry still sell and they still use as a benchmark. And it's, I think, been really good for our industry to have this benchmark with the ISO name on it. So I'm still somewhat involved with all these projects, mainly with, with ISO. I'm very much a supporter of standards. I think they've done a lot of good. It may be the case that... Sometimes we've got stand, we've got you know two standards that do the same thing, and we should retire one. But that can be quite difficult because there are people behind all these things, and it's you yeah. Know, every standard has its own. I want to say collection yeah. of people that they support that particular standard. They feel so strongly about it. But you know, for the audience, this is you know absolutely amazing to be talking to Peter about XLIF. XLIF for our industry is like the cornerstone of our industry in terms of the file standards, how we inter- how we exchange data, how we exchange information in our industry between companies, etc. So it's about 25 years old. That's right. Like it's 25 years since people have been using it in commercial applications. I think Ber- the Berlitzer portal that I mentioned at the beginning was one of the first. What they had is that they had a connection to a a Lotus tool called Domino Workbench, where you could send a file using web services to XLIF, using XLIF to Berlitzer, get it translated and send it back. And that wasn't the last millennium. No, 1998 yeah, or something. That's right. Just from my, you know, for our audience here, and there's a lot of interest around the company, MemoQ, I know you have a lot of users, you've got a lot of interest out there. And you mentioned earlier in the conversation that you've sold or you sell currently MemoQ to the service providers, and there's like 19,000 translation company out there or approximately 19,000 translation company, according to the research that I've seen in the past few weeks, it's 18,600 18, something. I can't remember the exact, the exact number, but in around that number. You also, I've noticed, and I know a few of your teams here in, in North America that they, they, they work with MemoQ. And I understand mm. that you also sell to a regular businesses like a yeah. bank or a pharmaceutical company or whoever is interested in buying it. So mm. in your opinion, is there a difference in the growth area for MemoQ? Would you see this sector growing versus the other sector? Or how, how do you view that now? At the moment, for the last, last few years, we've been growing far stronger with enterprises. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things with this is that the translation companies are very they're very mature users in terms of technology. They realized quite some time ago that they needed this technology in order to survive. Mm-hmm. They also, you know, know the various tools out there. Sometimes they use them all, sometimes they just use one tool like ours. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing at the moment is, is that enterprises are becoming far more educated about how they're working with uh, translation, and we're seeing more and more of them use uh, use our software. At the moment, about uh, 48% of our customers are either enterprises or government organizations, while about 40% are translation companies, and, and the rest are, tr- are individual translators. It's very good to see the diversification in your book of business, the split between enterprise and, and, and service providers. Mm. It just, I'm assuming it gives you that business flexibility in how you decide to move forward in your business and your, in your software development. Yeah, and it's also something that one of the things we did by design is we looked at the, 
the companies that were in the translation space, and we looked at what caused them problems. And one of the, you know, with Bound Global Solutions, for, for example, they used to have very successful years when Microsoft had a new release of Microsoft Office or something. And then if it was a year when Microsoft didn't have a release of, of Microsoft Office or whatever, uh, they would have a difficult year. Mm-hmm. And so what we did from the very beginning is set out to have a very diverse uh, user base, very diverse customer base, and also to have a, a lot of customers. We've got we've got some very big customer, but there's no customer that's got more than 2% of our revenues. Now, for our audience who are listening and are either your users or potential mm-hmm. users, can you give us what's next for MemoQ? What are they should be watching out for and what should they get excited about when they take a look at either the next release or the next three months or however you want to you want to put that so yeah okay well the tm uh, plus release is something that that's very important this is a major change to how we deal with translation memories much more scalable higher performance and so on and we're, we've released that at the moment. We're not suggesting that everybody goes automatically and just runs with it because it's, it is a major technology change and there may be some issues. But over the next year, that will become our default TM. We're also improving the process. One of the things that many customers are saying is a big issue for them is, is in-country comp- in review. And we've been improving our process with that. And that's, you know, hugely important. Obviously, like everybody else, we're looking at what happens with artificial intelligence. And we want to to improve that. We're quite a hyperverse company. We, we, We don't want to tell you that we've got something that will change your life and, you know, make you incredibly good looking and... Totally. But what we do want to do is to provide real value. And our approach to AI is with this. We we don't want to hype anything. We don't want to have something that's just almost a gimmick to have. We want to make sure that it's got real value. And we're doing a couple of things. At the moment, there is an integration with with ChatGPT that's available through one of our partners, Intento. We are working, well, we, we've we've developed integrations with two tools, one created by Taos and the other created by Modelfront, which deal with AI-based quality estimation. And, and they're quite powerful tools because they provide the sort of quality estimate that you had with the fuzzy matching and whatever you get in a translation memory. They provide that for MT. And they, both tools are really spectacular. The mm-hmm. Taos tool does this in a generic way, and the model front does it with your own data. And we're excited to work with both these partners. We're working to figure out how to how large language models and related technologies will be used within MemoQ. On the one hand, we're going to have it there so that you've got it as a search, you know, that you can search for a term within a a tool like ChatGPT or whatever, in the same way you can currently use a web search within MamaQ. What we're trying to do is to make it so that you've got the most powerful tools and very easy to reach. Mm -hmm. And they're just some of the things that we're looking at. You know, the with MamaQ, we've got a legacy of very important. We've almost forgotten some of the things that uh, but really you know, are really powerful. And we also want we'll be planning to to revise them over the coming the coming year or so. You know, we've for example, live docs is something that I think nobody else has got a corpus memory within within their tool. It's probable that corpus memory becomes much more relevant in how you deal with, say, output that comes from a large language model because it'd be a good way to align them on the fly. If, for example, you've got output that's in two different languages or more, you could line them all 
on the fly using a corpus memory. And we've got that technology there. We're working to improve on it. We're working to bring in the new TM engines, very important. How we're dealing with technology, you know, processes such as in country views, very important. I think our approach to AI is one that's really focused on real customer value rather than telling you it's magic. Yeah, I know it's the buzzword right now in every everything that we hear, everything we every discussion that you enter into it, it seems that everybody wants to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. the latest advancement in AI and chat GPT and the machine translation. And I think the uh, from a customer perspective from the you know the user or the consumer of the translation services that we ultimately all provide to the economies around the world is you know I want to, you know, it's, it gives them the access to be to to have services that they're relatively free. And the second thing is the speed which by they obtain the the. Yeah. the most people who are translating these contents are cannot judge the quality of that content, so they take it at fa- face value many times. That this is okay. It looks yeah. to be whatever that language that I'm translating into, so it must be good. Which if you, you know, if you take a cross, and, and I did that, I, I take a scan across many conversations that I've had, it's contributing like these technologies in their current state, and I'm sure improvement will come down the road in their mm-hmm. current state. It's greatly contributing to the, you know, to the, to taking the quality down a little bit. The, if you, if you imagine the quality as a curve, instead of stabilizing yeah. going up, I think it's taking it down a little bit because just that democratization of the of the tools, I guess, and making them available to everybody and everybody now, like I want it now, you know, I want it fast. And and probably if I can download an app and get it done, it's it's okay with, with me too. And normally people see the, as, as you mentioned earlier in the, in the case of the lawyer who got disbarred in New York for using yeah. those free tools for the, and not necessarily injecting a human in validating those tools, you normally end up in a trouble. And, you know, we've seen some evidence here, you know, in, 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 in Canada, I think it was one of the retail chains here where, you know, the, the, uh, they were playing uh, on the word of the, the, the greatest of all time, the football, uh, the football theme, world soccer, I guess. And the word actually was translated into an actual goat, not G-O-A-T. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> translated into a goat. So you'd see yeah. there's some of those you cannot escape if it's going to the public mm. eye. Yeah. If it's internal consumption, fine. You can mm. judge that if you want to. But if it's going to the public, it's going to come back. And, yeah. you know, encourage people to play that. Carefully, 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 and you're right. Decipher the hype, you know, the hype from reality, and make sure you take what is advantageous mm. to us as as a businesses, as a service providers, yeah. etc. So one of yeah. the things I wanted to talk about is, you know, as you look ahead, and this I know it's a philosophical question. Sorry about that one. <laughs> if you look ahead for our localization industry, our localization industry, in my opinion, started ten thousand years ago. And in, in, in the, you know, I, mean, I don't know if they can trace it all the way back to the Babylon day, but let's, let's assume it started there. But yeah. um, what do you think it's going to happen as technology continue to evolve, continue to get better? And the cycle of developing technology is getting shorter. So one of the conversations we've had is said, okay, well, let's take a look at a year down the road. Well, it's not a year down the road. We're talking about a month, two months down the road in terms of how technology is evolving because yeah. Development cycle, and you're in the software development, you you probably can attest to that. The development cycle has gotten shorter as well, so which contribute to the evolution. Yeah, there. The first thing to say is that the you know talk of the demise of the translation industry has happened before. At oh, one stage, <laughs> you know, at one stage, translators used to speak into a dictaphone and. They would have a number of typists who would hear their tape and would type it. And they thought the personal computer could destroy the industry. You know, when when that happened, when cat tools came in, people thought it would destroy the industry by lowering the quality and whatever. I I think it's, you know, it's going to be, there, there will be changes. I think what we've been saying to people for some years that augmented translation is where it's going. In, in and by that I mean you will have better suggestions from different things, but you need 
to have you know a really well qualified well experienced person in charge and have somebody in control one of the funny things with the changes in technology up to this stage is that they never seem to increase the number of words that people translated per day I saw a retirement speech by Brian Kelly, who created this company, Softrans, many years ago. And he said when he started in the translation industry, translators could do 7,000 words per day, and now they can do 2,000. Seems that we have gone backward. Is that your point? (laughs) Well, I'm not saying that, but uh, using dictaphones plus somebody typing was a very powerful way of producing a lot of words. I I think we need to be careful to we are actually making progress. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things we need to be very careful of. We need to make the case that it needs a professional translator dealing with with certain types of content. If your mother is going in for an operation and the machine was created in Germany, you want to make sure that the surgeon has read a manual that's been translated by a competent professional and that that hasn't just been machine translated, no one checked. And in, in the United States, it's actually illegal. It's against the law to have text for, for that sort of thing that has not been checked by a competent professional translator. I think we will see different jobs come out of I don't know what these jobs will be. I would caution anybody who believes that things are happening at a rate of months that maybe it's not quite as simple as that. For example, GPT in, in chat GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. They have had this technology for probably the last five years. What happened last November is that OpenAI put a a simple interface on it and released it to the public. And the public wrote in, you know, make me a, I'm having friends to dinner. What should be the menu? One of them is from Germany. One of them is from, it's just a nice menu. And it came up with nice menus. And, And that's great. But the technology hasn't been quite the roller coaster that, uh, you know, the hype suggested is that pe- the people working in those areas are very serious scientists who put an awful lot of work in it. And, and I, I think ultimately it will end up with a technology that will be of use to people. Mm-hmm. I see those things as being ways of, not with every translation workflow, but with some particular workflows, it will probably be the case that LLMs will, large language models will be the best way to provide new content, but there should be people, competent people in control of what they do. And the most competent people to control language output in different languages in a multilingual setting are translators. So, no, I appreciate that. And I and you, you have a very valid point around the people need to be careful in, in, in those technologies. And, and I agree with that. You, you know, as, as I've been in the industry for 21 years, I've seen the technologies that everybody was threatened by and we're still here. And the the idea that, you know, one magic wand type of a type of a solution for our multi-diverse industry in terms of number of languages, number of texts and the type of text and the you know, a number of demographics that you need to cover. It's pretty, a pretty large task for humanity to take on. I, it's, it's, I think it's going to be many years to come and we'll continue to coexist with machine assisted work. I mean, we use, we use software in every aspect of our lives nowadays mm-hmm. and specifically on the translation, on the translation side of things. No, I want to thank you for, uh, for your insight on this one. I know we're coming up on the hour. I still have two, two more items for you. One okay. is. From your vantage point, what is your advice to professionals in our industry as the industry is going through what they're going through right now? And I'm the first advice I'm guessing here is that you know don't believe the hype. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm hearing from you. But what is your? You know, you've, you've been you've, you've been in, you know a, a veteran of the industry. You've seen so many things have gone in the industry changes, etc. You've been through through so many companies. What's your advice to professionals in our industry? Not so much don't believe the hype, but don't be scared of it. I, I, 
I think it's important. Technology is meant uh, to work for people, not the other way around. You know, this isn't some, we, we don't live in some sky fiction where, you know, like do androids dream of electric sheep or, or whatever. We don't live in that sort of Blade Runner type scenario. We have to be in control. And the technology that's around is changing. It's important to know what it is, what it does. My suggestion is don't be scared of it, but it's meant to work for you, not you work for it. You know, you should figure out how you can get these technologies to, to best work for you, how they can improve your working, how they can make your business more optimal. And I think that's the way to look at it. Try and make them work for you. That's right. Not the other way around. Absolutely. Just I want to thank you so much for being part of this conversation, Peter. And before I wrap it up, if you have any a few words that you'd like to say to your audience, to our audience, and the floor is yours again. Well, I, I, I just like to thank you. I'd like to thank your audience. And I'd like to hope that they have a very inquiring, curious approach to this. And I, I think our industry is a very unique, it's maybe similar to many others, but it's made up of a lot of wonderful people with great ideas and whatever. It's a good place to be. It'd be good if they approach it with a, you know an open heart and have fun while they're working. So thank you very much, Robin, and hopefully we'll meet in person sometime soon. Take care. Thank you. I would love, I would love to meet you in person. I know we work together, but we never had a chance to meet. I'd love to at some point to meet you in person and shake your hand and say hello. I, again, to the audience, I want to thank you and thank everybody for watching this episode. And if you have any comments on today's episode, on everything we've chatted about, please send us an email or put it in the comments or however you'd like to reach out to us. We're open for your suggestions comments, and questions. Thanks again for everybody and enjoy your rest of your day.